Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack um, that's part of our African American History Week. Today we're going to be talking about the Tulsa race riot. So this has been described as the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. And joining us today is Tim Madigan, who's an author and a journalist for publications such as the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune. And his book, The Burning, about the Tulsa race riot was published in 2013. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. It's really good to be with you, Alex. Thank you. It's just such difficult times. I hope everything's okay. You're in Texas. Um, how are you doing with lockdown? Well, uh, we're doing we're doing okay. I mean, it hasn't been as severe as it has been in New York, uh, uh, but uh, uh, and, you know, and things are starting to reopen here. Everybody's kind of holding their breath, but you know, it, uh, we're everybody's kind of in the same boat. What's so so unique about this time is that everyone all over the world and going through the same thing at the same time. So we're probably in a very similar situation to what you are in one. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, just one that we hope all ends as soon as possible. Like you say, you have to get going again, but well, we're keeping a close eye on what your folks in Oxford are doing in terms of that vaccine. Yeah. Um, because, because, you know, that'll be a, a day for celebration when these uh, vaccines come out and we can, kind of start looking forward to life as it was before yeah absolutely i mean has america has just sort of passed a land but horrible landmark in a way hasn't it because it's now more people have died from coronavirus than they had than they did in vietnam yes oh uh, d- double i mean <clears throat> we more than 100 111,000 people have died in the states uh, and i think B- vietnam was 50,000 something so <clears throat> the toll is the toll is unmanageable. Just fingers crossed, as you say, that this vaccine, we get it soon. Um, let's talk about Tulsa. Tim, sure. can, can you place Tulsa, Oklahoma, at the beginning of the 1920s into context for our general audience? Well, um, Tulsa uh, emerged pretty much overnight in the early part of the 20th century as, a, as an oil capital. They discovered oil nearby. And it went from the sleepy town to a city of about 100,000 people <clears throat> virtually overnight. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of wealth, uh, oil money. And 
what ended up happening was African-Americans from all over the country began showing up in Tulsa because uh, to share in the prosperity. And the way they did that was they went across the tracks from their, their community on the north side of the railroad tracks to, to white Tulsa and worked as, as uh, chauffeurs, gardeners, housekeepers, uh, boot blacks, um, domestics. Uh, and then they take their money back across the tracks uh, and, and this professional entrepreneurial class emerged um, in Tulsa. And it did, and it was known to be one of the most prosperous African-American communities in the country. And in fact, I think it was Booker T. Washington who, uh, who nicknamed it the Black Wall Street. So it was, it was, the place to be and basically a symbol of what many people thought was possible for African-American people in the United States at the time. Um, but it, it, uh, that prosperity also came with, uh, or came with risk because uh, the, uh, the whites in Tulsa and whites all, all across the South particularly uh, were jealous of any kind of prosperity that blacks were enjoying. And so there was, it was this really the 1920s uh, and in the years after World War One, which I know you're extraordinarily familiar with, mm -hmm. um, was a very, very volatile time uh, in the United States. Uh, the, the, the tensions were not just be, between blacks and whites, but between uh, anything who basically wasn't uh, weren't uh, Protestant whites were considered to were, were frowned upon and particularly what were called hyphenated Americans people who are coming from Europe non-English speaking uh, immigrants from Europe so it was a, a really ugly time in, in American history that uh, has really not uh, has really not gotten its adequate uh, gotten uh, its adequate due in terms of what it was like at, at, in those years. Um, it's like you say, it's an extremely positive uh, spirit in that area in Tulsa that had built up um, and like a beacon. But as we're about to see, the consequences of it in 1921 and people's negative <coughs> reactions to it were horrible. And um, Let's start by who was Dick Rowland and how did this young man become embroiled in the events that came to pass? Dick Rowland was a, a young man uh, who worked as a shoeshine boy in, uh, in, at a, one of the high-rise buildings in White Tulsa. And uh, he was kind of a ne'er-do-well character, uh, but he had evidently struck up a relationship with a young white woman who ran one of the elevators in the building where, where Roland worked. And one day in the late, late May of 1921, Roland was getting in or out of Sarah Page's elevator and something happened. Either Roland tripped and fell into her or something happened in the elevator. What almost certainly was not the case was that Roland did not attempt to assault her in any way. In fact, the two of them had had some sort of a relationship. Well, that, for whatever reason, Sarah Page gets off this elevator screaming that she had been assaulted. Um, and that, one of the things that's important to remember about Tulsa 
is that it was completely consistent with what was going on, you know, in the United States at the time with regards to Jim Crow. Um, the only thing that distinguished it probably was the scope of what eventually ended up happening. And one of the surest ways for African-American, especially African-American men, uh, to get in trouble with the whites was to look the wrong way at a white woman. And uh, so Dick Rowland knew that he was in big trouble. Uh, and eventually he was arrested. Um, the cops pretty much immediately determined there was really nothing uh, to the charges. But essentially, uh, in the days after he was arrested, he was being held for his own protection as much as, as, much as anything in the top floor of the, uh, of the county jail in, um, in, downtown, in the courthouse in downtown Tulsa. That's right. They took him in, didn't they? Um, that's interesting that you say that in part it was for his own protection. But what was the initial reaction to his um, being picked up? Well, you know, I think that he would have, it would have, it would have, it would at least possibly would have died down. Um, but uh, on May 31st, uh, I, a white newspaper editor uh, who was in a, in a newspaper war with a rival figured a way to sell newspapers was to inflame things. And he published a front page editorial in his paper on May 31st that basically, it, under the headline, To Lynch Negro Tonight. And Tulsa had already had, already had a history of lynching people white and black. So anyway, Within a few hours, hundreds, if not thousands, of people gathered around the courthouse, um, uh, either to participate in the lynching or to observe it. And uh, the sheriff at the, the county, the sheriff at the time, and Willard McCullough said, "This is, isn't happening. You aren't, you aren't getting Dick Rowland. I'm going to protect him. You'll have to kill him maybe uh, to get to him." But anyway, get this. Newspaper gets back to Greenwood, uh, the Tulsa, the black neighborhood, and creates a huge stir. And one of the things that I think a crucial element in this is that many, many young men in Greenwood had fought for the United States in World War One. Yeah. And in fact, they had uh, disregarded a lot of the German propaganda, which said to them, "Why are you fighting for the United States when back home your your people are being lynched and treated?" With in such a degrading way. They thought, the blacks thought, uh, or the general theory was that, that if they went and fought for their country, that when they got back to the United States, uh, that conditions would be better. Mm -hmm. The reality was, is when they got back, they were worse. And so there was a general attitude that they would not sit quietly by and let one of their own be, be lynched. And that's what happened in, in Tulsa that night. They gathered. Uh, their guns and their rakes and their garden hoses and anything they could use as a weapon and went back, went down to the courthouse in the midst of all, all this, this mob, the sheriff had assured them that, uh, that Dick Rowland would be protected. Uh, and so they left, came back and skeptical of the, what the sheriff was saying. And then, and, um, and then it, it, the second time they went back, there was an accidental 
confrontation or a confrontation where a shot was fired and then all hell broke loose. And next thing you know, several people were lying dead around the courthouse and the, the blacks retreated back across the tracks. Um, and, uh, and then, then Dick Rowland became an afterthought. The whites yeah. in Tulsa, the whites in Tulsa uh, began to mass, they began to loot hardware stores, arm themselves. And so, and, and there was fighting that went on through the night. Uh, but by the by the time um, by five o'clock in the morning, there were thousands of white people massed along the, at strategic places along the border of Greenwood, uh, ready to attack, and they did uh, with the sound of a whistle at five o eight a.m. And then the attack was on. Um, it literally just explodes, doesn't it? Can you describe the scenes for us? Well, uh, they did. Initially, a uh, uh, hundred, hundreds, maybe a couple hundred African American men, heavily armed men, defended Greenwood to the extent that they could. But eventually, they were just outnumbered, <clears throat> and uh, and then uh, were powerless to stop what happened. Um, what ended up happening was uh, groups of of whites, white white men would go from building to building and uh, and basically knock or uh, kick in the door. And uh, there, there are many stories of horrible atrocities. Uh, one of the most prominent were an old black couple were kneeling in prayer uh, when the mob showed up and they were both shot in the back of the head and, and then their house was burned. Uh, five, you know, uh, another horrible story that a that a white man recalled years later was he would he would play with three black boys, um, and and then on the night that this happened, men showed up at the at the at the young black kids' home. They heard gunshots. They heard. You know, basically, the, the the black family was burned alive inside their inside their home. So, just story of the atrocity after atrocity after atrocity. And what would happen was that the, the whites would go in, basically steal whatever they could, pile the belongings in the middle of the floor, douse them with kerosene and, and light, and, and set it ablaze. And essentially, the only places that were left uh, after this was finished were either the rental properties owned by whites or the outhouses, because evidently the mob didn't think the, out, the outhouses were worth wasting their kerosene on. So this went on through most of the morning of June 1st, and by the time it was done, uh, Greenwood looked like Hiroshima after, after it was bombed. Uh, and 10,000 people homeless, hundreds of hundreds of businesses, churches, schools, thousands of homes destroyed, and up to 10,000 people left homeless. They, um, the following morning, they called in the National Guard, didn't they? Yeah, they, the, the guard got there. Uh, the guard got there at some well after the damage had been done. Um, and so it was pretty much, the guard by then were pretty much irrelevant. Mm. Um, and and then these all these black people were herded into detention camps, many of whom stayed. That's where many of 
whom stayed for the next year. So when it was all over, uh, uh, there was nothing left of essentially of uh, this this very prosperous African American African American community. It's like a thirty-five block area, isn't it? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yes, it was 35 blocks. It was, you know, 10 to 15,000 people, 35 blocks. It just and something that's never been substantiated. Were there not rumors of air attacks? Well, it, it hasn't been officially substantiated, but it's 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 a virtual certainty. You know, I've talked to people myself when I first started researching this twenty years ago who are who survived it, and they told me firsthand about how when they were fleeing. Uh, these these biplanes would appear out of the air, and 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 the and the gunshots or the bullets would rain down on rain down on them like heavy rain raindrops. Um, so there's really no there's really no question at all. Mm. Even though official Tulsa denied that the planes were being used uh, were were weaponized, there is no doubt at all that uh, that that uh, the planes were used to attack and fire down on, and, and in some cases drop things like Molotov cocktails down on uh, on, Tulsa, on the black Tulsans or the, the, the black people as they're attempting to flee. It's just, just beggar's belief. Um, there's, there's an official death toll, isn't there? Um, but it's, it's not right. Well, the official death toll... Uh, it's like 36, I think 26 yeah, black uh, people and 10 white people. Yeah, I mean, that is just ludicrous. It's, but um, that one is based on how many autopsies were carried out, which, like you say, is just a useless figure, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, 26 people would, 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 would amount to one flatbed truck full of black corpses that were seen uh, throughout the morning and throughout the day of June 1st driving through the streets of Tulsa. Uh, I think that a, a reason, much more reasonable estimate would be 300 mm. and probably 80 to 90% of those being black people. And uh, most of them buried in mass graves. Uh, one, of the more, the, the, one of the current development, current developments in Tulsa is the Republican mayor of Tulsa uh, has led an effort to, to uh, 
a scientific effort to try to locate those mass graves. But yes, it was the official, the, the official death toll was meaningless. Yeah. Uh, the actual death toll was, like I say, uh, 300 maybe under, under, uh, underestimating. Um, do you have like a money, uh, 35 blocks, like you say, the, the district was wiped out, was it? That like financially, I guess it's just obscene how much damage was caused. Yeah, um, and most of uh, uh, most of or many of the leaders of Tulsa fled, never to return. Mm. Other others uh, had their money in white banks, uh, and so they had access to their funds. Um, what, it, what was really interesting, uh, one of the ma many interesting facets of it is. Uh, is that after this happened, reporters, uh, the media from all over the country showed up and showed up in Tulsa, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Houston Papers, all over, and, and basically wrote a very, very, wrote very, very damning accounts of what happened. An official Tulsa at the time could not have been any more contrite. They took they said this is a shameful episode. They took complete responsibility for it. They promised to atone. They promised reparations, this and that. But as soon as the media disappeared, everything changed. Rather than uh, atonement, they tried to steal the land, uh, the black land that had been that had been destroyed, and only through legal action were they prevented in doing so. Um, but, you know, there was this kind of sham grand jury proceedings that took place. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you, who was punished? Anybody? Well, nobody. I mean, the, 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 the uh, Tulsa police chief was indicted and convicted. He never served a day in jail as far as I, for basically dereliction of duty. He never served a day in, day in jail as far as I know. Uh, there's probably about 100 indictments, 75 of them, uh, and that's about 75 of them were black people. But no one was ever convicted, um, and uh, and basically, Tulsa couldn't move fast enough to try to brush this under the under the uh, under the carpet. And if you would have moved it, and, and eventually, and I saw that one of your questions, eventually Tulsa was rebuilt, but uh, very uh, close facsimile to what it had been prior to this. Mm. And and that it and much of its uh, vitality had been restored through the fifties, uh, but then segregation, gym, uh, segregation, urban renewal dealt it. You know, basically destroyed it all over again. Um, but it's uh, the cultural amnesia uh, is really remarkable because if you would have moved to Tulsa ten years after this happened. Yeah, uh, you would have never you would have never known that it happened, and the question is, uh, why would that be? Um, and the, in, in broad strokes, the answer was, White Tulsa was ashamed, and and there was no statute of limitations to murder mm -hmm. for murder, so they knew that they were at legal exposure if there was any kind of a a larger investigation and the blacks and the, and among the blacks um, the person who gives who deserves the most credit for restoring this to history 
was a was a man by the name of Don Ross, who's a state legis black state legislator representing the Greenwood area uh, in the 1980s. And uh, and after the uh, Alfred Murrow building was was bombed, and I believe it was I, I forget the year, uh, but there was this great discussion about how that was the worst act of domestic terror in U.S. history. Well, Don Ross said, as terrible as that was, it wasn't. The worst act of domestic terror in, in American history happened down the road in Tulsa. Mm -hmm. And he insisted on uh, forming the, what, is, what was called the Tulsa Race Riot Commission in the Oklahoma legislature and was, was basically uh, the first official attempt to study what had happened. But, but he, as a teenager in the 1950s, a te one of his teachers started to talk about the massacre. And Don Ross said, that's crazy. There's no way that could have happened. You know, you're lying to me. Mm -hmm. and, and, and his teacher was one of the people who had tried to fight off the whites. Um, and so basically said, Don, sit down and shut up. The next day he brought in a scrapbook that showed with photographs of what had happened with corpse after corpse burned out building after burned out building. And then he started to introduce uh, Don to other survivors who had seen what they had seen. And so Don asked him one time, and I, and I talked to someone else about this today, Don asked this, this teacher, Bill Williams, why have you not talked about this? And Williams' reply was, and this is in the 1950s, because the killers are still in charge in this town, boy. He said, now you understand why anyone who lived through that once damn sure doesn't want to have to live through it again. You ask a Negro about the riot, he'll tell you what happened if he knows who you are. But everyone's real careful about what they say. I hear the same is true for the white folks, though I suspect their reasons are different. They're not afraid, just embarrassed. Or if they are afraid, it's not of dying; it's of going to jail, and and so therein lies the kind of the underpinnings of of the really an extraordinary uh, extraordinary example of cultural amnesia. But again, my belief is this doesn't apply just to Tulsa; it applies to so much of uh, America's racial, racial past uh, in general. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think is the legacy of the Tulsa race riots? Well, I'm, uh, that is yet to be determined. Mm -hmm. I think that in the, um, there's an HBO series called Watchmen, and I don't know if, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, but the opening sequence was, was a very effective dramatization of the massacre uh, based largely on, on, on my book. Um, and so that was really the first introduction to, uh, for many people that this had ever even occurred. Um, and I think that as a white American, I grew up in the Midwest, upper Midwest, where there were very few people of color. And the issues of race were just not that relevant to me. Uh, 
And so, but when I learned about Tulsa and I researched and I did the research about Tulsa, not only about what happened there, but what's going on in the country generally at the time, it just absolutely shocked and horrified me. And it changed the way that I looked at the world. It changed the way that I looked at other people. And my theory is that um, if people can, the more, the more awake people of goodwill can summon the nerve and, and the intentionality to really look back and understand and, and, and see what happened in places like Tulsa and, and across the United States at the time, uh, that, that hearts would be changed. And in light, and my, again, my uh, opinion is there's a lot of talk of reform uh, in the United States right now, um, and talk of reforming police departments, but it's so, so systemic and so deep that I think that what hap needs to happen first is, uh, is, a, is a basic, uh, as a nation, to look back and for the first time to really come to terms with what our, our history, kind of the, what has been described as the original sin of America. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think once that happens, when Jim Crow, Tulsa, slavery are finally being taught in our schools in such a way uh, that, that can more courageously and accurately depict what the history has been. Um, I think that that's, you know, I, but I think we need to start there. And I think mm -hmm. Tulsa, Tulsa encapsulates uh, so much of, of that history that it is a very uh, efficient way by learning about Tulsa. It's a very efficient way to, to learn about our history more generally. And so I think that uh, I'm, my hope is that, uh, that that is that will be Tulsa's legacy. That it will be really be a, a one or a very effective and meaningful portal uh, in, into uh, into our past. I think so. In a wider sense, perhaps what you're saying is that America hasn't yet learnt from incidents like this. It appears, but really before that can happen america needs to properly acknowledge this part of its history and teach this part of its history so that they can use it as a lesson going forward i would absolutely agree with that i think it's absolutely essential and i think to try to to try to to try to bring about meaningful change in this country without doing that uh it would just it will just be window dressing and uh band-aids on on something that's very deep uh, uh, very deep and very old. Um, tell us again about your book, what it's called, if people want to go away and learn more and sit and read and digest the events of Tulsa in their own time. It's called uh, The Burning, Massacre, Destruction, and the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, and available on Amazon and uh, other online uh, uh, booksellers. Tim, thank you so much for coming on and taking part in our African-American History Week. Uh, I just think by putting stories like this out there and talking to people like yourself, who, who their hearts are already there, it can only help add to a wave of change. No, I'm, I'm really honoured to be with you and, uh, and I appreciate to be talking to someone in, in the UK. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care.
Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Jessica Marie Johnson. Jessica is an assistant professor um, in the history department at Johns Hopkins University, and she specialises in Atlantic slavery. She joined us to talk all about her book, Wicked Flesh, Black Women, Intimacy and Freedom in the Atlantic World. Join us for that because it's just fascinating. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.